show. That's a good show. See you next week. Yeah. Thanks for coming. Ready? Prepare to rant. Hi, Captain. Here we go. Today is August 10th. Uh, that would be Monday, August 10th, 2015. And this is episode 127 of the Defensive Security Podcast. My name is Jerry Bell. And joining me tonight, as always, is Mr. Andrew Callett. Jerry, how are you, sir? I'm fantastic. How are you? Good. I'm sorry we could not record yesterday. I was at an event with my lovely fiance, and I actually probably would have rather recorded a podcast, but it seemed like a good idea when we signed up for it. Well, we all have our duties. It's true. So the uh, the thoughts and opinions we express on this podcast, by the way, are ours and do not represent those of our employer in case there's any confusion about that point. And based on our pre-show discussion... I think this disclaimer is highly relevant. Probably so. Mm-hmm. Probably so. So uh, just before we get into the the mix here, a couple of points. The first thing is the, uh, the High Tech Crime Investigation Association Conference is coming up right on our doorstep. It is uh, uh, sorry, August 30th through September 2nd in beautiful Orlando, Florida, htciaconference.org. I bet they're probably running low on tickets or something. Uh, let's see. Next thing is DerbyCon. That That's, uh, I think, September 27th, if I'm not mistaken. That sounds right. Sure, we'll go with that. Yeah. I will uh, I will be flying in from beautiful and sunny New York. Well, you're going to the HTIC, HTCIA. You're going to both of them, right? I'm going to both. That's right. Yeah. Absolutely. I will be at Derby, but I will not be in Orlando. Sorry. That's all right. We'll have fun without you. I've got to go to Michigan and be in a family portrait. That might, I don't know. That that must be some kind of portrait, man. I. It's not my idea. Uh, anyway, it seems like they should be able to do that over Skype or something, or you know, with, I, with Bitcoin, or I mean, like blockchain you. family pictures over blockchain. I, why? Why is somebody not coming up with this stuff? I, I think I could just send a card where it cut out. That, yeah. yeah. Personal. You could, you know, you could make it look a little better. Oh, well, not that you look bad, right? Everybody looks better with a little Photoshop, Jerry. True. Especially your mom. <laughs> oh my god! All right, so uh, let's uh, let's go ahead and get into our stories. And wait, wait, we weren't done. Any other events coming up that we will be at? Um, not that I know of. You? I guess not. No. I thought there was something else. Yeah. No, I'm okay. sure there will be soon. So, so DerbyCon. You got to come find us, though, because it'll be fun. Uh, absolutely. Okay. It's going to be great. Oh, and, and speaking of DerbyCon, by the way, I started a. Uh, I, apparently, I've I've fallen into this role accidentally of matchmaker between people who need to sell their tickets and people who need to buy their tickets. So, oh. if you have a ticket that you are not going to use, let me know. Hit me up on Twitter at malicious link. Let me know. I've got. I've got a bunch of people who want a ticket i'll help you sell it is this a scam this is not a scam i'm just i it's a public service okay trying to i'm trying to help the community here all right so um oh boy the first story we have yeah can security awareness prevent spear phishing is the title and this one comes from the uh, InfoSec Institute. So, 
yeah. So it's a it's a it's a fairly lengthy article, and there's some in, some things in here that I have a big big problem with. So, oh, do tell. Yes, yes. So, uh, so let's 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 jump into it. So uh, they f- they first start start off talking about how firewalls and malware scans are are needed are important components and that even sysadmins need to go even further and implement tools that will help recognize suspicious traffic and screen social media use to cap to catch and stop phishing before it actually happens and those are really important but but those aren't enough right solutions those technical solutions are not enough we must train our people I think this sentence sums it up quite nicely. That, uh, quote, the success of spear phishing attacks depends on finding the weakest link. Goodbye, you are the weakest link. In a corporate network, that weakest link can be just one person. One. Just one. Who falls, who falls for an authentic looking email. That's right. Since, since the target of these attacks is actually the user, it is, say it with me now, the user. That needs to be the first line of defense. That, that is deep. And completely BS. <laughs> it's really deep. Because um, technically the user is not the target. What is the target? It's the data. Correct. The user is just a means to the end. The user is just a meat puppet to get to the data. Wow. I have never heard that saying before. I hope I never hear it again. I was going to put it on our next tchotchke. Okay. Speaking of tchotchkes, by the way, there, the rumor has it there are some hints. There, yeah, there, there's a hint out there, yes. About our DerbyCon tchotchke. Yep. yep. That's all I'm going to say. Just those who are attentive will know. All right. So, um, so, so moving on in the story, there's another point in here. Uh, the more end users are aware of the risks, the more they'll be able to not act in an in an impulsive way when pressed for information, and will be able to evaluate each request. And and they they go on to say that training for executives is particularly important because they're the primary targets. Uh, which, you know, I we can we can kind of say that's probably true. We had um, what was it? Ubiquity Networks, right? They had. Almost fifty million bucks stolen in a, did. in a fraud. Completely coincidentally, I'm building a really nice beach house. <laughs> awesome. Uh, and then they go on to say that ninety five percent of all attacks on enterprise networks are the result of successful spear phishing. And really, and and so number 95. one, number one, I'm you know I, I question the validity of that number, but let's just assume for a minute that it is in fact true. What does that say about our ability to successfully deter spear phishing? I mean, does that mean that no one at all? I mean, you know, I, I look. If I were writing this article, I wouldn't cite that fact. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's stop for a moment and ask who is writing this article. Uh, well, in fact, I believe it is a. Um, a, a number of people, actually, I don't know who the specific author is, but a number of people who are interviewed do own and operate training companies. And what do they train for? Uh, spear phishing. Oh. Yes. Oh. I know. I know. It's crazy. But but here's the thing, right? I, people latch on to this stuff, and, and I fear that it gives false hope. And so that's why I'm spending the time to make fun of it. Right. So uh, so let's just let's move on. Right. A well-trained team can be taught to recognize the sign of a phishing email, phony website or other suspicious behaviors. And that completely ignores the fact that people break down under pressure when they're tired, when they get disillusioned with their job, when they have a really tight schedule or they hate their boss or, uh, you know, the point is that email if you've if you've ever read Kahneman, is a system one activity, and we're we're trying to. What what do you mean by system one activity? 
for those who haven't heard that term. Uh, so, so system one activities are automated things. They're like, um, you know, recognizing your friends. They're, uh, you know, driving. If you're if you've been driving for a long time, it's driving your car. Uh, system two is much more deliberate. Takes a lot more energy. In this system two is taking a math test. You know, it's it's trying to to figure out which uh, which thing you should invest your money in. Um, you know, and, and it's it's those sorts of things that as humans we often work subconsciously work pretty hard to avoid spending effort on. And and so email I propose is a system one activity that we spend the minimal amount of time and attention possible. And I, I say that kind of renders a lot of this is, um, you know, kind of a theoretical bunk, I guess, for lack of a better word. Um, and, you know, in particular, when you when you read some of the... I, I, I go back to some of the things that we heard about in the wake of, like, uh, Syria, the Syrian Electronic Army's attacks. I think it was... Um, who was it? It was one of the... the wasn't the onion one of the uh websites you know parody news sites got hacked and they did a kind of an expose or decomposition of how they got hacked and one of the things that came out was an executive of theirs checked her phone early in the morning right after she got out of bed and fell for you know clicked on a link because she you know, that's the thing you have to be cognizant of is it's really easy to have all these platitudes that say, you know, look, uh, you know, let's let's uh, train people how to how to detect phishing and, and you know, shady looking emails. But think about this. Are they going to are they going to be able to do that when they have one eye open and they're looking at their phone in their bed? Right. Because well, that's what you're doing. This goes to the same sort of training muscle memory, whether it's brain memory or whatnot, that almost any technical skill comes down to. So if you're in a stressful, critical situation, you default back to what you've been trained to do, right? So, and you only have you know, a certain amount of ability to be trained to a certain amount of level and maintain that proficiency throughout your life. And so I think what I hear you saying, or at least the way I interpret it, is that we IT security people think, breathe, and eat IT security. So it can be innate and native to us to spot phishing without extraordinary levels of, uh, you know, uh, sort of brain power. Yep. But for the average user, it's not what they do and see every day. So it is a big deal for them to go, you know. It's it's sort of like when you first start learning to drive a car, you're really thoughtful and really have to put a lot of mental energy into driving that car. Well, eventually it becomes innate and, and intuitive. And it's not that you're not thinking about it, but it's that your your lower brain is thinking about it, and you, you can do things subconsciously. And and it's why in a crisis or in a, in a near-crash situation, your body can react so much faster than your conscious mind can because you've got this innate built-in unconscious ability to drive once you've gathered enough experience. And so I see that very similar to what you're saying about spotting phishing emails. We in the IT security industry probably can spot them pretty easily because it's what we do every day. The average user does not. Exactly. And to expect them to get that level of proficiency I think is unrealistic. Yeah, and I, I don't think it's reasonable to expect that you're going to provide them enough training to build it up either. That's the. It's not their core competency. It's and, not what they care enough about. The incentives aren't there for them to care. And and the, we're going to get into something in just a minute here, which I think is even more problematic. So so continuing on, they talk about you know, to avoid spear phishing. They have some suggestions. Uh, number one is never provide personal or financial information in response to an email request. And I got to say, in the context of a business, is that really rational? I mean, can you actually expect that you cannot, you, you sh- you're going to tell your employees to never respond back to the HR department, you know, with, with uh, some kind of personal information? I think it's, you know, I think we would have to, in, in order for that to be a rational position, 
many of us would have to re-engineer our business processes that have developed. It's just a reality. Their next next item was do not act on suspicious emails, which sounds awesome. But what the heck is a suspicious email? And let me let me also ask, what's going to happen the first time someone ignores an important, urgent, legitimate email? Are they going to get rewarded for you know being cautious, or are they going to get you know bitched out? Excuse me, Executive Admin. Why didn't you transfer that four million dollars to India like I asked you to an email last night? <laughs> you know that. Let, let's let's be let's be but, really clear here. I mean, that is the flip side. That is why that scam is working right now. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think it's, you know, number one, the, the there is no good definition of what a suspicious email is, right? And so, yeah, mm-hmm. you can you can show people, you can parade out examples of suspicious emails all day long. Uh, but you know what? They get more and more and more and more like legitimate looking email. And uh, I, you know, I really think that if if we're going to take this seriously, our culture has to be such that we're not going to, you know, we're going to be okay if people ignore legitimate emails, because that's the that's the inevitable consequence. Well, you get to you're no longer doing you know business action through email because it's no longer or that yep. valid or trustworthy. Yep. And then, so, go ahead. Uh, uh, I was going to move on, but go ahead. So all that being said, are we at a point where we want to talk about what actually works? Oh, I've got that's further down. We, okay, we got sorry, we got a lot more. We got oh, a, I got a, I got a lot more problems. Rant on, my friend. All right, do not open attached files or click on links without first knowing the sender and their URL address. What? And can uh, can anyone really follow that guidance? Uh, uh, uh uh, and and why would that stop anything? Uh, it's real easy to spoof this from my random executive dude uh, or doodad. Uh, you know, I I I, um, I just or some other gender neutral version of dude. Yeah, you're you know, somebody a long time ago gave me this piece of advice, and it goes like this: When you're down in a hole, stop digging. Okay, and yet you keep inviting me back. <laughs> Fair, fair enough. Fair enough. Uh, but you know, I was got I got to thinking about you know, all almost everything we do, lots of of common business practices are trending in a direction that is making this more and more difficult. Like every link you you get in an email now is obscured through some marketing company's you know ad tracking or you know things like that. So what's What's a suspicious link? And who do you know? You know, how many people do you converse with over email where you know you you actually know them? You know, in the context of a business, is that really a rational thing to say? If you're an HR person or or a recruiter, do you really expect to know all the people that you're going to be emailing with? I, I just, especially when they have resumes. Yes, exactly. They're going to be sending you their resumes. I'm a sales guy, and I need to process POs. Oh, I sorry, I can't process your PO. Right. Yeah. No. Yes. That's <laughs> not. not gonna, that's not going to go over very well. Uh, so I just think th- those don't work very well for me. Re- report any recognized phishing attempts, and you know for what purpose. So let's talk this out. So let's say, and I'm not picking on. FishMe, but there's a company I know of called FishMe, and they do awareness campaigns by sending out basically fake phishing emails, okay? And, if, and they, they track stats, and it's actually kind of interesting. You can see how many people uh, opened it but didn't click on the link, how many people clicked on the link, and it's a unique link per person, so you can figure out what departments are more likely to be a little clicky-clicky, and, you know, it's all sorts of interesting stats. And they can craft these these phishing emails to look like just about anything. So you can craft as difficult or as easy of a test as you want. And, you know, ultimately, if they do click on one of these phish me links, it takes you to a web page that says, oh, you fell for a phishing email. You know, you need to be more careful and read this guide or however you want to educate them. 
Um, they're interesting campaigns to show the state of the problem. And it trains use some users to some degree, some percentage. And it probably cuts down phishing to some round number, right? You know, there's probably, you know, a return of maybe 20 percentile or I don't know. I'm making up something. But it's never going to get to zero, ever. And you're never going to be able to eliminate that risk at the human layer because the bad guys can always keep changing their technique. And they do. And and they're always going to find something that works. They only have to be right once. Yeah, well, it's... So this is a really complicated mathematical problem because you you know think about all the employees you have in your organization and how many opportunities do each one in a given day have to fall victim you know so it's not just that each and individual like, person is an opportunity it's like at every moment during the day every one of your employees is a potential not just target. Employees, though. Well, right. Third right. parties. Yes. Vendors. Other people who are connected to your environment. Right. Contractors. I mean, it's a huge ecosystem. Yes. Yes. And so it's a. I I just um, you know I I've said it before, and I think that awareness training is effective at reducing the rate at which people will in aggregate fall for phishing and, and uh, you know email based scams however it's you know it's, it it could say take it down from 20% failure rate to you know 10% failure rate you know that other 10% is going to be astronomically difficult and you're also to assuming address. that the, you're also assuming that the adversary is static in their technique exactly so if it, I've got an adversary who's truly focused on my environment, they will keep trying different techniques until one works. And, and by the way, we're not talking, this whole article is not talking about the general case of phishing. This is specifically intending to talk about spear phishing. Right. Right. And so when I say, you know, I, my view on, on awareness training as it relates to phishing is that you can, in fact, reduce your help desk load and your you know incident response load if you can cut that rate down right but it is not going to save your tail from someone someone who's you know a, a dedicated adversary who's going to spearfish you now Period. the one thing i will say is that i do believe that it is important if you do have users who recognize an attempted spearfish or phishing to report it to the IT security group because that same email may be sitting in other people's inboxes that you could delete or you could black hole that domain or something along those lines. Yeah, and that was going to be my question. What 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 do you do with it once it's been reported? Oh, well yeah, that that's it's like local threat intelligence at that point. It's it's a it's an IOC. It's uh, you know, it gives you a pointer to look for other malicious activity. And you might be able to do some forensics of who's actually clicked on this and you could start tracing that back. So you know the the kind of the scope of the problem you have. But in general, it's too late at that point. That's not where we pretty much decided that, I, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I think there's a value diminishing returns on user awareness training. Do we have to do it? Yes. It's now codified in a whole bunch of various compliance, so it's not going anywhere. Does it have some impact? Yes. Is it sufficient? Hell no. Yeah. So we're stuck back with technical controls. Right. So I got one more one more okay. point and then we're gonna talk about you know Sorry. some ideas. I keep jumping ahead no, on No, no, it's fine. It's fine. So they, they talk they have this uh they have this point here. Busy executives and executive assistants might not have the time at their disposal to really analyze the email received. Really? Therefore frequent training is needed to help stop the instinct to reply with sensitive data or click on suspicious links. And you know, so I know we've both been around executives uh, a lot and I got to tell you if they're that busy you're not going to have an opportunity to do frequent training. I've watched in personal experience and I know frequent sexual harassment training has never stopped an executive from doing that, much less anti-fishing. <laughs> Touche. Touche. Wow, I I knew you would find a way to take that somewhere weird. But <laughs> that's that's my job. But let's be honest. This goes back to the same thing we've talked about over and over again. And I'm not 
slamming all executives here, but if they have a certain set of incentives and a certain role to fulfill, little things like stopping to examine if this is phishing is not a good use of their time, and they know it's not a good use of their time. Right. And it's just not something they're going to think about, and they're not going to worry about it. That they, They've got too much other stuff to do. And this is a problem for that damn IT department to fix. Yeah. Not for me. If, if I'm not supposed to click on that link, they should make it so I can't click on that link. Mm-hmm. That's so so anyway, now now let's talk about some ideas on on how to actually address this. No, I I, I you you're done. <laughs> <laughs> you fired your bullets and you're you're done. No, it's 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 a complicated problem. But in my mind, it is like any other malware problem. This is just the vector. Yeah. Okay? So you have to treat it as an endpoint problem with malware. Well, to be fair, though, it is a little beyond just malware because some of this, like the ubiquity thing, is is actual just con jobs. Oh, that's true. And I'm I'm ignoring that for a moment. But you're correct. That that is – yeah, that's straight-up social engineering. That's not even – in the realm of IT, that's just, you know, somebody being conned. <laughs> right. Right. So, I, you know, I've, I was thinking about this, and clearly there is an element, a human element here. And, I, again, I do not think that training is the end all here. But, um, you know, I, I was, I've been thinking about how can you use technology and training and behavioral what I'll call behavioral controls to to kind of you know interleave right so things like um going back to the ubiquity case right one of the things that just appears to me and we've seen this happen a bunch of times lately where people are getting scammed out of tens of millions of dollars and it's like controllers of companies and CFOs and and, and this was the ch- uh, chief accounting officer I think of ubiquity that that did this this is kind of a business process problem. I mean, if you if you have a business process where you are going to be transferring money, you should probably design it such that someone, you know, a person can't unilaterally make that mistake. Even if it is the, you know, the CFO, there should be, you know, in most financial processes, there's usually some kind of a, you know, a two-step or two-person kind of process, especially when you're talking about millions of bucks. Yeah, absolutely. But when you have a sole executive, and this is exactly what they're playing on, you've got to pre-establish those business controls. Yes, that's right. That's right. And I know it's going to be painful, but you know how painful is it to lose fifty million bucks? It's kind of like establishing a safe word before. Oh, never mind. <laughs> oh jeez. Uh, then uh, you know the, another one I was thinking about is highlighting where uh, highlighting emails that come from the outside. Yeah, I've seen a number of companies put external on the subject line, uh, and, which is not bad. And you know, it's again, it's not a perfect control. However, you know, going back to the the Syrian Electronic Army case, you know, the the that person or that lady fell for uh, in you know an email that I, I going back, I'm not exactly sure if it appeared to come from outside or or inside. But any in any event, I fear though that an external tag will turn up. You know, end up being like the SSL invalid certificate flag. Just click continue to go past it. Possibly so, but if you have, you know, if your if your coworker is, uh, you know, Jane Doe, and you get an email from Jane Doe and it says external, that's the case that I'm. You know, that aren't we kind of falling back on the same problem? We're expecting the user to notice and care. Yes, but we're giving them more more clues. Okay. Fair enough. Um, you know, it's 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 not a you know it is not a technical thing. I, I'm just looking at how can no. we. And to be clear, I like it. I'm just pointing out yeah. that's nope. not perfect. And then I mean, the, going back to the malware perspective, uh, you know, I've talked about this to death on the show, and that is just don't allow people to click on links or open attachments on systems that have access to sensitive data. You know, figure out figure some way. To build an isolation, and I know that's an unpopular thing, and people will email me and saying that's just unreasonable to do, and 
most organizations, but you know, at some point, do we cross the threshold where it becomes reasonable? Well, it's all about the pain to mitigate the risk, the cost. Yeah, yeah, or you know? or implementing, you know, system some kind of system level controls, whether it's virtualization or, you know, so- something, to you know to to implement that isolation for you. Well, and I, I, go ahead. Sorry, I've got nope. some others to throw in. No, nope, that's it. That's it for I me. Keep, go ahead. I keep trying to interrupt you on the show. I'm sorry. Uh, there's a few others I've I've seen in my career. There's some some tools uh, like Proofpoint, for instance, that is specifically made to analyze inbound emails for uh, you know phishing and malware emails, and they'll do some interesting things. Like for instance, if there's a link in the email, they'll go and take a look at that link and see if that link is malicious. If it is, they rewrite that link in email before it gets delivered to the inbox. I think that's clever. Uh, there's you know tools like FireEye that will scan emails for inbound attachments that are malicious. Uh, it doesn't do as well with links. It has some limited support for that today. I think that's useful. Uh, I think if you look at the endpoint as being under attack, there's a number of other things you can do uh, from various endpoint controls, whitelisting to, um, you know, we've got some some new technologies popping up for micro VMs and, uh, you know, that sort of stuff to sort of protect the endpoint from hostile code. There's there's a lot of options, uh, but I think fundamentally, I wouldn't agree with the ninety five percent stat, but I would say it's you know it's high. It's it's probably the one the number one single vector for uh, you know exploit activity right now, at least the initial footholds coming into organizations. Yeah, um, it's it's clearly a big problem that we're not addressing well. I think is the the, the net point. What I mm-hmm. wanted to get out of this discussion is that you know we're we're not dealing with this well, and trying to train our way out of it is is not you're not going to have the effect I think that we're hoping. So I think fundamentally what we're also saying is that the InfoSec Institute will not be calling us with I'm, job offers. I'm guessing not. We have not enjoyed their Kool Aid. <laughs> All right. So. so it's a complex problem, but it's a real problem. It's one I don't think gets enough attention, uh, and it's it's a it's a vector that's incredibly powerful right now. That's right. So moving on to our uh, our next story, since we beat that one into the ground, this one comes from HelpNet Security, and the title is "79% of companies release apps with known vulnerabilities." And which which by the way, on its own, is kind of a weird stat because if you read down it actually says that 43% of companies admit to releasing applications with vulnerabilities at least 80% of the time. So this is starting to sound like a complicated math word problem. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, Tim leaves Biloxi going 60 miles an hour. Yeah. There we go. If zero day A is twice as big as zero day B. And zero day C is half the size of zero day B. Sorry, carry on. No, but uh, I, I think the 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 net point is whatever the numbers are, and I think we all probably can relate to this to some extent. This is another another situation of mixed up incentives because you know we we have a situation here where organizations are in fact releasing products. That have vulnerabilities, they know it has a vulnerability, but because of some, you know, external or internal deadline, it, it needs to get out the door with, you know, I assume every intention to go and fix it later, um, you know, and and the problem there is that it it probably also has unknown vulnerability, so it's, you know, this is just compounding an already bad problem, and I I don't have a a great point here just to say, man, this industry has got its work cut out for it. We're, we're going to be employed for a while. Well, I think if you, if you look at the incentives, uh, software companies and internal development groups, whatever, are incentivized to ship code, not secure code. Well, I mean, that, that's exactly right. We, yeah. we, as consumers, that's not on the 
that's not on the the top of the list, you know. I mean, Microsoft, I guess, gives lip service to Windows 10 being secure, right? But that's few people. I I I don't think really rate security, especially in a in a in an organizational context. You know, do you before you go off and decide you're going to buy the the next version of Exchange Server, do you do you ponder you know whether it's more secure or less secure than uh you know ibm's notes you know <laughs> no you just no. buy it and it's usability it's functionality it's features it's right you know you especially the best is when people issue like rfis and such and you know they they have security as a primary motivator but you could have something that's completely unusable but very secure and they won't buy it trust me it's it's not what drives the industry. We could have an incredibly secure version of Windows, but it would probably take 10 years to develop. It would have very, very little innovation and cost a whole lot of money. Right. And that is not what drives our industry. And I, You know, I wonder, what would it look like if you were to actually make that a requirement? What would it look like? You know, uh, would, would you say, you know, it has to be secure, or would would you say you can't? What's, what does secure mean? Yeah, you, you can't have had a uh, you know a, a more than three CV, CVSS nines over the past five years, or you know, and does that even make any sense for going forward? Or is it you know it takes it takes the vendor a certain amount of time to close a or under a certain amount of time to close a vulnerability once it's disclosed. I mean, I, you know, what what, are the, what would be the metric that you would even use to go and, and objectively measure on? And I, Well, I know the government has some. You know, you, you can look at some of the certifications of, of governments for a certain level of security. Because yeah, NIAP and common criteria are right. the... Whatever. But, no, they're, they're trying, right? <laughs> I know, I know. I'm sorry. But, okay, so let's play that out. If, if I were truly a software company and I was developing a product and I wanted to tell security, I could say, all right, well, look, I did – I used a tool like Fortify On Demand as I was coding, and I've got the secure coding development lifecycle, and I've got taught all my coders how to do secure coding, and I've – ran every uh, bit of code that I could through static code analysis, and I eliminated these 800,000 vulnerabilities before we went to compile. And then after, I ran it through, uh, you know, whatever the applicable vulnerability scanning tool is. If it's a web app, you know, I threw, we'll keep picking on HP, web inspect at it, and white hat, and a bunch of other stuff. And I remediated all those vulnerabilities. And, uh, and then I put in production, and then I added an insecure password to an account, right? I mean, it... <laughs> So what are you going to do? Uh, it's not just development. It's also how you implement it, how you administer it, how you run it. Right. And how you utilize it. In what, in what setting is it in? In what environment is it in? Uh, you know, any functionality you turn on is, uh, you know, potentially a risk. And then you're not going to patch because the patch might introduce a new risk. Yeah, especially I, if it's an enterprise application, yeah. And yet... We, we're also told that we can't run end-of-life software. That's its own risk. Right. So I, I don't know that you're ever going to get to that point. I think we, you know, the, the, the incentives and, and the finances and the way people make money in this industry is to constantly innovate. And that is not healthy for security. Now, are we getting better at security? Yes, but it's also kind of like fighting the last war. We're getting better at plugging the holes at a foundational level of common problems that we've seen for many, many years. That's right. And we continue to find new, you know, fundamentally new vectors or, or, or techniques. And I don't have a better answer for you. I, I, I think it's just going to keep being this way. Uh, you could always bolt on some third-party applications like whitelisting or micro VMs or whatever. Um, and in essence, what you're doing is you're taking away that innovation and functionality and locking it down to a s specific situation so that, you know, it has less flexibility but more security. Mm -hmm. um, and that's, you know, because keep in mind, especially when you're looking at something like Mac OS X or, or, or Windows 10, it's being developed for a massive user base with incredibly diverse needs. Right. 
So, you know, from grandma sitting at home watching Wheel of Fortune to massive enterprises. Yeah, they've got different revs, but at the end of the day, it's the same code base. That's fair point. And that's just picking on the operating system. So, I mean, I think browsers are the perfect example of this problem. We want to drive more functionality and more capability into web browsers. So what do we build? We build Java. We build Flash. We build uh, JavaScript. We build all these capabilities, HTML5. And all of them introduce vulnerabilities, including HTML5. Uh, but we want that functionality. That's right. We have to watch our cat videos. <laughs> it's, very, it's very important. And if we don't virtually farm, our virtual people will virtually die. And your your virtual crops will wither and die. It'd be terrible. Anyway, I, I, I'm done. <laughs> uh, it it is um, it 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 honestly feels like a like like a dysfunctional treadmill we're on. <laughs> well, I don't know. I think I think it's the realization that every application, everything in your environment, can be exploited and broken. If you go in with that mindset, you're ahead of the curve. Assume your applications are vulnerable. And then how do you limit the damage? Yep. That's, I think that's what we have. That's what we've got to deal with. So anyway, speaking of uh, you know, robust applications, our next story is, is a doozy. I found this one on... The security metrics mailing list. And just so you know, I left that robust application joke alone in reference to your mom. I did that for you. Well, well, thank you for pointing that out. Mm-hmm. How would you know otherwise? I, I don't know. I don't know. So uh, so this this comes from uh, the Springer, uh, Springer.com, and it appears... I think it's trying to appear to be somewhat of an academic kind of article. And the the title is The Case for Election Technology. And the point is, the net point is, it's it's a very long article that basically says, we are crazy for continuing to use paper ballots and we need to embrace electronic voting because it's far more secure. And... Uh, it's you know, it's a pretty long article to explain that, but there's really two paragraphs that I think say it all, and I'll read it right now. To create a completely unhackable system, Smartmatic, that's the name of the company that employs the person that wrote this, combined the following ideas. Security fragmentation, security layering, encryption, device identity assurance, multi-key combinations, and opposing party auditing. Bingo. <laughs> Explaining... All of them is beyond the scope of this article. The important thing is that when all of these methods are combined, it becomes possible to calculate with mathematical precision the possibility of the system being hacked in the available time, because an election usually happens in a few hours or at most over a few days. For example... Wait, and that code base is immediately discarded and never used again? Well, we're going to get there. Sorry, go on. (laughs) For example... One of our, for one of our average customers, the probability was one times ten to the minus nineteen. I assume he means the probability of being hacked. That is that is a point followed by nineteen zeros and then a one. the The probability is lower than that of a meteor hitting the Earth and wiping us out in the next few years, which is approximately one times ten to the minus seventh. Hence, it is reasonable to assume the term unhackable. To the chagrin of the purists, and to my pleasure. So, um, yeah, 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 yeah. So, so this is really interesting, and it sits at the intersection of some things that interest me very greatly. Um, does does that include stupidity? Well, actually, yes. Okay. Yes. So, I think. I want to. I'll get into the statistics in just a minute, but I think that there's a common kind of logic that underlies many IT people and managers and people everywhere who, 
you know, who kind of think they understand the world and, and, you know, and, and how it works. And so in, in this particular case, this group, and by the way, I know nothing about what technologies they've implemented. And so I'm making an assumption, which I feel pretty confident in my assumption, right? That, uh, you know, that all of these things stacked together mean that this thing is, in their words, unhackable. And the problem is that they don't often, and I'm sure this person doesn't think this way either, understand, you know, the the other ways that this system can be attacked, right? So they might, the and a successful attacker may not attack it by trying to reverse the, the encryption key, you know? They, they, there may be some completely other avenue. Again, I don't know much about this particular thing. I'm talking about this in the abstract. You know, th- this is this is a great example where I think people just believe that systems, uh, that this, particularly systems they've designed themselves, are far more robust than they actually are. So now I want to talk about statistics for one second. Can I jump in? Yeah, go ahead. So interestingly, the way he phrased this, hacked in the period of time, reminded me a great deal of how safes are built and certified. And so a safe has a rating for amount of time it would take for a skilled intruder with you know, the common safe-cracking tools to break into a safe. Yeah, I think that's exactly where he's going, yeah. Right. And the problem with that is that when you're dealing with a safe and tools, uh, the principles of metal and metallurgy and the robustness of all of your hinges and all of the connections are known at an engineering level beyond a shadow of a doubt. And so you can estimate and test these things uh, pretty consistently because the skill set is fairly static. The problem is, and I think you're alluding to this, is that when we start talking about uh, you know, IT security, it's akin to somebody coming up with a brand new type of acid that nobody has ever seen before that eats right through the metal in a few moments that no one ever accounted for or anticipated to defend against. Exactly. That's exactly it, yes. That, right. So, um, so when you look at, the, the inevitably the way this person calculated the probability of of this system being hacked to, at ten to the one times ten to the nineteen nine, minus nineteen sorry um, you know th- there's a there's this principle that says in, in statistics if you have independent events you can multiply their probabilities together to find out. Uh, you know what what the aggregate probability is. So if if I flip a coin, it's you know fifty percent likely to be heads or tails. If I flip two coins, right, it's I can multiply fifty. You know any any particular combination, I can multiply the the two likelihoods together, and I come up with you know it's a one in four chance of any particular combination of two coin flips coming up. And and so prob. My my assumption is that this person came to the conclusion that you know if you if you were to take um, you know that the security fragmentation adds so much complexity, the encryption would take you know it, it is so complex you know it has its own level of complexity and on and on and you multiply these things together, you 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 get this you know really unlikely number one times 10 to the minus 19. But that assumes that each individual thing is completely independent of all the others. And so in in the case of a coin flip, the next coin flip is in no way dependent on the previous coin flip. And that means that I can, in fact, multiply the probabilities. However, if for whatever reason, through some, you know, weird law of physics, if a coin flip depended the outcome of a coin flip depended on the one before it you couldn't do that it wouldn't work and in the same sense what 
my experience certainly, and I, I assume many other people's experience, is that these IT systems are, you know, they're very complex. They've been in, implemented by, you know, a team, and you often see common failures that run through them. And, uh, or, you know, kind of side channel attacks or just completely uh, you know, unexpected bypasses that render that the whole probability calculation nonsense. I mean, it's, the, the, the this this calculation here makes me crazy. I, um, I and, and and what makes me most crazy is that it struck me that this is the logic that many people are are subscribing to e- even if only subconsciously when they are designing their IT systems or when they're when they're listening to the vendor of some new next generation firewall talking about how you know, how much security their thing is going to add to their network this is this is the fundamental problem or you know one of the fundamental problems that people are really not understanding that these these systems are far more complex than we understand them to be and and hence you know while while it seems very easy to calculate with ma- with mathematical precision you really haven't actually calculated anything but it sounds good in marketing man i know it does well i think this is a fundamental point of where a good pen test could really show the fallacy. I don't think this guy means anything malicious. I think he truly believes what he's saying. Uh, but I think this is the case with many designers of many pieces of technology. They they just don't think like bad guys do. They they feel their assumptions and rules, and it's like being in the Matrix. But those who know how can bend those rules. Yes. And that is the problem. They go in with all these assumptions. Right. Well, that's just not possible. Well, guess what? It sure is. Uh, you know, it's it's like people throwing fuzzed TCP/IP packets at things. Well, we never anticipated because TCP/IP specs don't aren't written that way, so we never thought they would give us a half-open scan and then flood us with you know a ton of UDP and then and then it hit us with a, a, a reply for a TCP packet we never sent out. We never thought that would happen because that doesn't happen in the real world. Who guess would what? who would not set the evil bit? Right. And I've seen this over and over and over again when developers or or product managers come up with these ideas based on these uh, criteria or based on these, you know, sort of assumptions they don't even realize they're making in the lab. And then when it goes into the real world, they're just completely befuddled because that's not how things work in the real world. There are no rules. That's right. You know, I can I can make a packet look and feel like anything. You know that TCP/IP could do. I can sit any bit any way I want. I don't have to follow any spec. You know, just as an example of you know a network-born attack, uh, and there's many many others. But um, no, I think I think you stated it really well, and you brought up a really good point. Yeah, and this, by the way, I think is what you just mentioned is is a reason I think. Yeah, and and we'll, we'll we're running out of time, but we'll talk about it, touch on it very briefly. I think there is value in the designers of IT systems like this in having an awareness at some level of depth, not not very deep, of the tactics that the bad guys are using, right? Because I, I, I think that, you know, th- these people haven't taken the red pill, right? And they're, they're, they're not in, they've not seen the outside of the matrix. They, they're not... They're not aware that those kinds of things can happen. So the question is, should they be? Is that too much to expect of product designers? If they're not, then what do you have? I mean, it just seems like they need to... If if you are designing a system, you ought to know to some level the ways that that system can fail. Uh, I concur. Or or is this a multidisciplined activity that other people help with, you know, uh, an architect isn't the only person designing a building. He's got engineers and others involved. And that, that's fair. That's fair. But 
I and and so maybe this is the whole purple team thing, right? But but I guess this is even more purple team is more like uh, you know, security operations, you know, and using red team to defend help defend your network. This is right. way farther up the chain, right? This is in the product or the 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 system design phase. And you know, I, I think that some amount of awareness would go a long way there. I agree. I agree. I just I worry that it's the same problem that we have with training users for phishing. Uh, I, yeah, I, I think so. I mean, it's certainly not going to be a perfect thing, but I I do think that I see it happen quite often that that um, system designers are just completely oblivious to the the, the attack techniques that that are are out there in the world. Yeah, I agree. Uh, you know, I, <laughs> I I can't believe that someone would uh, you know would would compromise my system like that. You know, how how that that's just not possible. Until and, it happens. and I think if we're not careful how we communicate it, we sound like, you know, just cynical uh, FUD mongers who are just spreading, you know, fear and damnation and hell and repent or you're going to die kind of stuff. That's and, a great you know, point. We got to be careful about the credibility issues. That's a great point. It's a very good point, which, which, by the way, I think is one of the reasons that the, you know, the, so we're, we'll, we'll dovetail nicely into the talk on uh, the, the discussion about Black Hat, uh, DEF CON, and B-Sides, which, you know, sadly, neither of us were able to attend, um, which my, and I think your your uh, your observation even more than mine, is that most of the talks are, you know, uh, dare I say, junk hacking, red team type, type stuff. But, you know, going back to what you just said, you know, th- nothing, nothing makes... It takes the whole FUD aspect out, like, you know, showing someone how you can actually compromise a system in a particular way. Yeah. Yeah, so. I mean, that's why pen tests work. As as artificial as they are and as constrained as they often are, they work because it's a visceral demonstration. Right. Uh, and, yeah, you know, we were – I think we were out of time, but we were going to talk a little bit about – uh, you know, Black Hat and, and DEF CON and, and, you know, red team is sexy, blue team is boring. You know, that's how a lot of people perceive it. And that's why you see the talks you see get selected because that's what the community wants to see. Yeah. Yep. I what I what I took away, I mean, in, in the waning moments we have here, what I took away is do not hook your Tesla or your Jeep up to your corporate network. Yeah. And All you right, should yeah. not be processing sensitive financial transactions on your Jeep or your Tesla's uh, you know, entertainment systems. But the sales guy said I could. Uh, You know, take that up with them. All right. So, anyhow. What if your corporate network is actually Tesla? I'm still going to go and say you shouldn't do that. All right. Fair enough. Just me. Just me. Anyhow, I uh, I think that's all we have time for this evening. And uh, thank you again for listening. Thanks to everyone who has donated to our Patreon campaign. That's uh, very awesome. The uh, the gifts are on the way. For oh, those. are they? Oh, they are, yes. Oh, for those, we'll, have uh, to, yep. we'll have to see if some tweets show up. Yep, yep, yep. Um, and if you like the show, give us some love on iTunes. You know, we're... Uh, we're we're way 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 down there on the bottom, we're right behind like a five year old Drupal podcast or something. So it's really sad. Makes and you me... know, our wives judge us based on our ranking in iTunes. Just so you know, that's true. Yeah, I uh, I, I was going to say something inappropriate, but whatever. Um, you can uh, you can find the podcast and the links to the stories we talked about. On our website, www.defensivesecurity.org. You can follow the podcast on Twitter at DefensiveSec. You can follow Mr. Kellett on Twitter at Lurg and me on Twitter at MaliciousLink. And with that, we'll talk again next time. Thanks, everybody. Have a great week. Always appreciate everybody tuning in and uh, listening to our show. Take care. There's a theory or philosophy uh, related to um, 
Uh, no, that's fine. Go ahead, check your phone. We'll wait. Sorry, God bless no, America. It's, it's, it's all right. It's your show. Do what you want. We'll listen to your snore while you take a nap if you want, for God's sake. <laughs> so, anyway, system Just one. Turn your mic off before you go to the bathroom this time. System one and system two are a uh, a concept that Daniel Kahneman and Amos Tversky came up with to explain the different behavioral processes people have, right? Oh, for Pete's sake. Other phone ringing now. <laughs> That's because you're name dropping like a bitch. And people are calling up going, yo, what up? I heard Kanye talking about you. So, uh, so yeah. Anyhow. Happy editing. Happy editing, yes. <laughs> Did you use the words, get me my switch? At any moment today. Okay. I guess it wasn't a good idea. No, it was a terrible idea. Hmm. One of your worst ever, actually. Really? Yeah. I can think of another one. Bye-bye. Bye-bye now. Bye-bye. 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 Bye-bye.